Section 12 of Global Trends 2030, Alternative Worlds, by National Intelligence Council. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Merritt Island. Alternative World 3, Genie Out of the Bottle. Footnote. The genie in this scenario, title, refers to the genie coefficient which is a recognized statistical measurement of inequality of income. And footnote. In genie out of the bottle, inequalities within countries and between rich and poor countries dominate. The world becomes wealthier as global GDP grows, but less happy as the differences between the haves and have-nots become starker and increasingly immutable. The world is increasingly defined by two self-reinforcing cycles, one virtuous leading to greater prosperity, the other vicious leading to poverty and instability. Political and social tensions increase. Among countries, there are clear-cut winners and losers. Countries in the Eurozone core that are globally competitive do well, while others on the periphery are forced out. The EU splinters and eventually falters. The U.S. remains the preeminent power, achieving an economic turnaround fueled by its new energy revolution, technological innovation, prudent fiscal policies, and the relative weakness of many potential competitors. Without completely disengaging, however, the United States no longer tries to play global policemen on every security threat. Parts of Africa suffer the most. The secessions of Eritrea from Ethiopia and South Sudan from Sudan are seen in retrospect as precursors of this era in which the boundaries across the Sahel are redrawn. States fragment along sectarian, tribal, and ethnic lines. The shale oil and gas revolution that benefits the U.S. proves disastrous for those African countries dependent upon oil exports. The failed states in Africa and elsewhere serve as safe havens for political and religious extremists, insurgents, and terrorists. The transformed global energy market and Saudi Arabia's failure to diversify its economy hit Riyadh particularly hard. Saudi Arabia's economy barely grows during this period, while its population continues to increase. Saudi per capita income declines from almost $20,000 today to just over $16,000 by 2030. In the face of this economic challenge, the kingdom no longer possesses the resources to play a major regional role. Elsewhere, cities in China's coastal zone continue to thrive, but inequalities increase. Social discontent spikes as middle-class expectations are not met except for the very well-connected. Fishers appear within China's leadership as members struggle for wealth, which in turn breeds self-doubt, undermining the legitimacy of the ruling institutions. Having an increasingly difficult time governing, the party reverts to stirring nationalistic fervor. In this world, the lack of societal cohesion domestically is mirrored at the international level. With Europe weakened and the U.S. more restrained, 
international assistance to the most vulnerable populations declines. Major powers remain at odds. The potential for conflict rises. An increasing number of states fail, fueled in part by the lack of much international cooperation on assistance and development. Economic growth continues at a moderate pace, but the world is less secure owing to political and social fissures at all levels. In 2028, the editor of the New Marxist Review launched a competition for the best short essay on the meaning of Marx and communism 210 years after Marx's birth in 1818. In her surprise, the journal was flooded with thousands of submissions. She was having a hard time sifting through the piles and selecting a winner, but she found one that pulled together many of the recurring themes. The essay made the case that Marx isn't dead, but is instead thriving and doing better in the 21st century than anybody could have imagined just 15 or 20 years ago. The following are excerpts from that essay. Marx, updated for the 21st century. The breakup of the EU a couple years ago was a classic case of Marxist inevitability. In a sense, what we saw was a transposition of the class struggle onto a larger regional landscape, with Northern Europeans in the role of exploitative bourgeoisie and the Mediterranean South, the defenseless proletariat. These tensions, as Marx and Lenin, by the way, tell us, cannot be resolved except through conflict and breakup. At first, it looked like the process of reorganizing the EU into tiers could be orderly, with the less well-off taking a back seat without much fuss. Unfortunately, Brussels did not address growing resentments among the have-nots. Practically overnight, we saw this process turn into chaos. EU Commission offices were attacked and burned down, not just by rioters in many southern European cities, but also in major cities in the richer north. For a while, it looked like we would see a reenactment of the 1848 revolutions. Unemployed youth in even the better-off northern European countries taking to the streets in sympathy. The EU's websites were hacked into. Its internal system was inoperable for months due to sabotage. The class struggle is widening into a new dimension that did not occur to Marx. A generational war appears to be afoot. The recently organized youth parties in England and France are calling for cutbacks in social entitlements for the elderly. They also want higher education fees to be drastically cut. We've seen growing class divisions elsewhere, pointing to a potential global revolution. Beijing's power over the provinces has been declining. China's coastal cities continue to do relatively well because of their overseas commercial links and richer domestic markets. Government efforts to build up the new interior cities have floundered. Little investment money is flowing in. A Maoist revival is underway there, and a party split seems inevitable. The Chinese should have known better. They inducted too much of the rising bourgeoisie into the party. 
this was bound to create conflict with the real workers. I don't see any resolution except through more class warfare and conflict. The Marxist and Maoist-inspired insurgencies are increasingly spreading in rural areas all over the world. India has a long history of Naxalist insurgencies, which continue to grow stronger. Interestingly, counterparts are rising up in urban areas. There you see a lot more crime. Much of it is sophisticated, making it impossible for the bourgeoisie to wall themselves off into gated communities. I know of some bourgeois families that have reverted back to paying for everything with cash. Every time they have banked online or used a credit card, cyber criminals who appear to have composed a list of targets siphon off funds from their accounts and charge enormous sums to their credit cards. Banks are finding maintaining security to be increasingly costly. In the Middle East and parts of Africa, unfortunately from a Marxist point of view, the terrorists and insurgents are still falling back on religion or ethnicity. The Saudi authorities are reeling from increased homegrown terrorists attacking the wealthy, citing their irreligious behavior. Every day in Saudi Arabia or one of the Gulf countries, another luxury mall is bombed by self-styled jihadists. Nigeria is virtually split with the Christian communities under siege in the north. The transposition of the class conflict along sectarian, tribal, and ethnic lines in Africa means the old colonialist map has been virtually torn up. By my count, there are 10 new countries on the African continent alone. In the Middle East, we now have a Kurdistan carved out from several countries. Winston Churchill and Gertrude Bell, architects of a united Iraq after World War I, would be spinning in their graves. Of course, the West and China have yet to recognize many of these partitions. They are like ostriches with their heads in the sand. There's too much veneration for those so-called venerable statesmen who drew up the old imperialist maps in the 19th and 20th centuries. I'm not sure that the U.S. is yet ripe for revolution. It's done too well from shale gas. The working class there got lulled by the increased manufacturing possibilities as businesses moved back from Asia when U.S. domestic energy prices dropped but it could be just a matter of time. Entitlement reform in the 2010s didn't happen because U.S. growth picked up. U.S. debt has continued to climb. It is only a matter of time before entitlements will be back on the political agenda. The onset of a global downturn, with all the turmoil in Europe and elsewhere, is beginning to stir up class tensions. The U.S. thinks it is immune, but we'll see. Unfortunately, opposition activists in America no longer read Marx. One thing Marx would have reveled in is the power that the proletariat now has. These revolutionary groups have many more destructive means at their disposal, from drones and cyber weapons to bioweapons. I worry that the tensions could get out of hand and the counter-revolutionaries will strike before the downtrodden have built up their strength 
and perfected tactics. In a sense, with the wider access to lethal weapons, there is less inequality than Marx imagined. However, the bourgeoisie are beginning to understand. The wealthy cities and towns will no doubt build up their security forces to deal with the constant disruptions and riots. The U.S., some Europeans, Chinese Communist Party leaders, Russian oligarchs, and others are talking about a global initiative against cybercrime. It's paradoxical. Years ago, the U.S. and Europeans were glib about the need to keep the Internet uncensored and available to all. The Chinese and Russians were concerned about such freedoms getting out of hand and tilting the balance too much in favor of empowered individuals. Suddenly, the scales have dropped from the Americans' eyes and class interest is back in vogue. Oh, that Marx could see that the class struggle never did die. Globalization has just spawned more of it. Genie out of the bottle. How Game Changers Shape Scenario. Global Economy. The global economy grows at a rate of 2.7%, much better than installed engines, but less well than in fusion or non-state world. The U.S. achieves an economic turnaround fueled by its new energy revolution and the relative weakness of many potential competitors. By contrast, growth slows in China with fears rising that the country will not escape the middle-income trap. Countries in the Eurozone core that are globally competitive do well. Some on the periphery are forced out. The EU splinters and eventually falters. Conflict. Rural, urban, and class tensions erupt, particularly in Africa and parts of the Middle East and Asia. The scope of conflicts grows as insurgents and terrorists employ drones, cyber attacks, and bioweapons. Regional stability. Parts of Africa fare the worst, with increasing fragmentation along sectarian, tribal, and ethnic lines. Middle East borders are redrawn with an emerging Kurdistan. Political, social, and generational conflict is rampant in Europe, China, and India. Governance The lack of societal cohesion, domestically, is mirrored at the international level. With Europe weakened and the U.S. more restrained, international assistance to the most vulnerable populations declines. More states fail, and more are partitioned. Technology the fracking technology behind the U.S. energy revolution hits energy producers like Saudi Arabia very hard. States increasingly worry that technology has given individuals too much power. By the end of scenario, Western powers are joining with China, Russia, and others to restrict Internet freedoms. U.S. Role in the World The U.S. becomes more restrained in fighting global fires. The few that threaten clear national interests are extinguished, but many are allowed to burn. By the end of the scenario, however, the U.S. is beginning to ally with authoritarian states to try to restore some order because of growing non-state threats. Genie out of the bottle. How major powers regions fare in scenario. Europe. Collective Europe is a shell. There is more diversity than uniformity across countries. 
the euro crisis turned out to be a devastating blow to aspirations for a europe as a whole playing a dynamic role in the international arena russia inequalities at home become a bigger issue with russian elites allying with counterparts in u.s europe and china to stem the rise of cyber criminals china china struggles to maintain its previous high economic growth rate as divisions between urban and rural populations grow owing to increasing discontent at home the regime is losing legitimacy a maoist revival is underway with growing divisions in the party india India struggles to keep up its growth rate as the rural Naxalite insurgency spreads. Brazil middle-tier powers. Brazil's efforts to fight inequality pay off with less domestic instability than in most other states. The rise of Kurdistan is a blow to Turkish integrity, increasing the risks of major conflict in its surrounding neighborhood. Poor developing states in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Poor states suffer from the overall slower economic growth rates. Domestic conflicts worsen the outlook for food production. Humanitarian crises overwhelm the international system's ability to provide assistance. Alternative World 4. Non-State World In a non-state world, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, multinational businesses, academic institutions, and wealthy individuals, as well as subnational units, such as megacities, flourish and take the lead in confronting global challenges. New and emerging technologies that favor greater empowerment of individuals, small groups, and ad hoc coalitions spur the increased power of non-state actors. A transnational elite, educated at the same global academic institutions, emerges that leads key non-state actors, major multinational corporations, universities, and NGOs. A global public opinion consensus among many elites and middle-class citizens on the major challenges, poverty, the environment, anti-corruption, rule of law, and peace, form the base of their support and power. Countries do not disappear, but governments increasingly see their role as organizing and orchestrating hybrid coalitions of state and non-state actors, which shift depending on the challenge. Authoritarian regimes, preoccupied with asserting the primacy and control of the central government, find it hardest to operate in this world. Smaller, more agile states where the elites are also more integrated, are apt to be key players, punching way above their weight, more so than large countries which lack social or political cohesion. Global governance institutions that do not adapt to the more diverse and widespread distribution of power are also less likely to be successful. Multinational businesses, IT communications firms, International scientists, NGOs, and groups that are used to cooperating across borders thrive in this hyper-globalized world where expertise, influence, and agility account for more than weight or position. Private capital and philanthropy matter more, for example, than official development assistance. 
social media, mobile communications, and big data are key components underlying and facilitating cooperation among non-state actors and with governments. In this world, the scale, scope, and speed of urbanization and which actors can succeed in managing these challenges are critical, particularly in the developing world. National governments that stand in the way of these clusters will fall behind. This is a patchwork and uneven world. Some global problems get solved because networks manage to coalesce and cooperation exists across state and non-state divides. In other cases, non-state actors may try to deal with the challenge, but they are stymied because of opposition from major powers. Security threats pose an increasing challenge. Access to lethal and disruptive technologies expands, enabling individuals and small groups to perpetrate violence and disruption on a large scale. Terrorists and criminal networks take advantage of the confusion over shifting authorities among a multiplicity of governance actors to acquire and use lethal technologies. Economically, global growth does slightly better than in the genie-out-of-the-bottle scenario because there is greater cooperation among non-state actors and between them and national governments on big global challenges in this world. This world is also more stable and socially cohesive than non-state world and stalled engines. In 2030, an historian is writing a history of globalization and its impact on the state during the past 30 years. He had done a doctoral thesis on the 17th century Westphalian state system, but hadn't managed to land an academic job. He was hoping that a study of a more recent period would give him a chance at a big-time management consultancy job. Following is a synopsis of his book, The Expansion of Subnational Power. Globalization has ushered in a new phase in the history of the state. Without question, the state still exists. The continuing economic volatility in the global economy and need for government intervention shows that the state is not going away. However, it would also be wrong to say that the powers of the state have remained the same. During the past 30 years, subnational government authorities and the roles of non-state bodies have greatly expanded. This has been especially the case in Western democracies, but the increase in subnational power has spread far and wide. The West no longer has a monopoly. The expansion has been fueled by the formation of a transnational elite who have been educated at the same universities, work in many of the same multinational corporations or NGOs, and vacation at the same resorts. They believe in globalization, but one that relies on and benefits from personal initiative and empowerment. They don't want to rely on big government, which they see as oftentimes behind the curve and unable to react quickly in a fast-moving crisis. This can-do and everyone-can-make-a-difference spirit has caught on with the rising middle classes around the world, which are increasingly self-reliant. It's fair to say that in a number of cases, the rising middle classes distrust the long-time elites who have controlled national governments in their countries. 
pence for the rising middle classes working outside and around government has been the way to be upwardly mobile denied entry at the national level many when they seek elected office see cities as stepping stones to political power this new global elite and middle class also increasingly agree on which issues are the major global challenges for example they want to stamp out cronyism and corruption because these factors have been at the root of what has sustained the old system or what they term the ancien regime the corruption of the old elites has impeded upward mobility in many countries the new elites believe strongly in rule of law as a way of enforcing fairness and opportunity for all a safe and healthy environment is also important to ensuring quality of life many are crusaders for human justice and the rights of women technology has been the biggest driver behind the scenes with the i t revolution all the non-state bodies from businesses to charities to universities and think tanks have gone global many are no longer recognizable as american south african or chinese this has been disconcerting to central governments particularly the remaining authoritarian ones which do not know whether to treat them as friend or foe the technological revolution has in fact gone way beyond just connecting people in far-flung parts of the world owing to the wider access to more sophisticated technologies the state does not have much of an edge these days weapons of mass destruction wmd are within the reach of individuals small militias and terrorist groups have precision weaponry that can hit targets a couple hundred miles away this has proven deadly and highly disruptive in a couple of instances terrorists hacked into the electric grid and have brought several middle eastern cities to a standstill while authorities had to barter and finally release some political prisoners before the terror hackers agreed to stop many people fear that others will imitate such actions and that more attacks by ad hoc groups will occur we have seen in the past decade what many experts feared for some time the increasing overlap between criminal networks and terrorists terrorists are buying the services of expert hackers in many cases hackers don't know for whom they are working a near miss bioterrorist attack occurred recently in which an amateur's experiments almost led to the release of a deadly virus fortunately the outcry and panic led to stronger domestic regulations in many countries and enormous public pressure for greater international regulation as an example of the enhanced public-private partnership law enforcement agencies are asking the bio community to point out potential problems in light of what could happen the vast majority of those in the bio community are more than eager to help however most everyone has recognized that action at the country level is needed too thus the original intent of the westphalian system to ensure security for all is still relevant since the near miss bioterror attack no one is talking about dispensing with the nation state on the other hand in so many other areas the role of the central government is weakening 
Consider food and water issues. Many NGOs sought central government help to institute countrywide plans, including pricing of water and reduced subsidies for subsistence farmers. There was even that huge G20 emergency summit after the wheat harvests failed in both the U.S. and Russia, and food riots broke out in Africa and the Middle East, which called for a new WTO round to boost production and ensure against growing export restrictions. Of course, all the G20 leaders agreed, but when they got back home, the momentum fell apart. The momentum took a dive, not just in the U.S. and the E.U., where the lobbyists sought to ensure continued subsidies, but also in places like India, where subsistence farmers constitute important political constituencies for the various parties. Five years later, no progress has been made in restarting a World Trade Organization round. On the other hand, megacities have sought their own solutions. On the front lines, in dealing with food riots when they happen, Many far-sighted mayors decided to start working with farmers in the countryside to improve production. They've dealt with Western agribusiness to buy or lease land to increase production capacities in surrounding rural areas. They are increasingly looking outside the countries where the urban centers are located to negotiate land deals. At the same time, vertical farming in skyscrapers within the cities is being adopted. This effort of each megacity looking after itself probably is not the most efficient. Many people not living in well-governed areas remain vulnerable to shortages when harvests fail. Those living in the better governed areas can fall back on local agricultural production to ride out the crisis. In general, expanded urbanization may have been the worst and best thing that has happened to civilization. On the one hand, people have become more dependent on commodities like electricity and therefore more vulnerable when such commodities have been cut off. Urbanization also facilitates the spread of disease. On the other hand, it has also boosted economic growth and meant that many resources, such as water and energy, are used more efficiently. This is especially true for many of the up-and-coming megacities, the ones nobody knew about 10 or 15 years ago. In China, the megacities are in the interior. Some of them are well-planned, providing a lot of public transportation. In contrast, Shanghai and Beijing are losing businesses because they have become so congested. Overall, new or old, governance at the city level is increasingly where the action is. We've also seen a new phenomenon, increasing designation of special economic and political zones within countries. It is as if the central government acknowledges its own inability to forge reforms and then subcontracts out responsibility to a second party. In these enclaves, the very laws, including taxation, are set by somebody from the outside. Many believe that outside parties have a better chance of getting the economies in these designated areas up and going, eventually setting an example for the rest of the country. Governments in countries in the Horn of Africa 
Central America, and other places are seeing the advantages openly admitting their limitations. Non-state world. How game changers shape scenario. Global economy. Global growth does slightly better than in the genie-out-of-the-bottle scenario because there is greater cooperation among non-state actors and between them and national governments on major global challenges. The world is also more stable and socially cohesive. Conflict Security threats pose an increasing challenge as access to lethal and disruptive technologies expands. Terrorists and criminal networks take advantage of the confusion over shifting authorities and responsibilities, and the multiplicity of governance actors to establish physical and virtual safe havens. Regional stability. Regional institutions become more hybrid as non-governmental bodies become members and sit side by side with states. Mayors of megacities take a lead in ramping up regional and global cooperation. There is increasing designation of special economic and political zones within regions to spur economic development. Governance Countries do not disappear, but governments increasingly see their role as organizing and orchestrating hybrid coalitions of state and non-state actors that shift depending on the challenge. Multinational businesses, IT communications firms, international scientists, NGOs, and groups that are used to cooperating across borders thrive in this hyper-globalized world where expertise, influence, and agility count for more than weight or position. Technology. Social media, mobile communications, and big data are key components underlying and facilitating cooperation among non-state actors and governments. U.S. Role in the World The U.S. has an advantage because many non-state actors, multinationals, NGOs, think tanks, and universities originated there, but they increasingly see themselves as having a global identity. The U.S. government maximizes its influence when it organizes a hybrid coalition of state and non-state actors to deal with global challenges. Non-state world. How major powers, regions, fare in scenario. Europe. Europe thrives as it uses its soft powers, NGOs, universities, and global finance and business to boost its standing. The emphasis on coalition and inclusivity in this world play to the Europeans' strength of coalition building to solve challenges. Russia Moscow is increasingly concerned about security threats posed by the growth of terrorist and criminal organizations. Russia finds it difficult to work with the proliferation of global non-state actors in the international arena. China China, as an authoritarian regime, is preoccupied with asserting the primacy and control of the central government and finds it difficult to operate in this world. India India has the potential to flourish with its elites embedded in global business and academic networks. If it manages its urban challenges, 
it also can serve as a trailblazer to others in the developing world grappling with rapid urbanization brazil middle tier powers middle tier powers play an outsized role where size and weight are less important than engagement in networks the degree to which they have a highly developed non-state sector will be an important determinant of success in this world. Poor developing states in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The degree to which developing states manage urbanization will determine whether they thrive or fail in this world. National governments that stand in the way of emerging urban clusters are likely to fall behind those who use urbanization to bolster economic and political prospects. End of section 12. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Merritt Island. End of Global Trends 2030, Alternative Worlds by National Intelligence Council.